Well, good morning. Uh, good to see you. Good to be with you. Good to see you, those in here and those of you uh, all bundled up outside. Um, I'm glad we're able to be together in this way. Um, and also to turn to God's Word and look at it together. And we are currently in a, a series during this Advent season, uh, a series that we're calling uh, Songs of Advent, uh, which Mike opened up for us uh, last week as he led us through Hannah's song uh, in the Old Testament. And, and this morning, in this our second week, we're, we're going to be turning our attention to what is probably uh, the most famous of all of the songs of Advent, and that is Mary's song in Luke chapter 1. And of course, many are very, very familiar with it. It's very well known. But even so, uh, one of the things that you may not know is that what we're about to read this morning is one of the most explosively political bits of writing there's ever been. In fact, before his execution uh, by the Nazis, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote these words in a sermon during Advent 1933. He said, The Song of Mary is at once the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. This is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary whom we sometimes see in paintings. This song has none of the sweet, nostalgic, or even playful tones of some of our Christmas carols. It is instead a hard, strong, inexorable song about the power of God and the powerlessness of humankind. Now, you wouldn't expect that uh, because it's a song from the lips of a young peasant girl from the ancient Near East in a tiny little nothing town, in a tiny little nothing region, in a tiny little nothing country. And yet what she has to say in this song that she sings, well, it's been so remarkably powerful in its influence. It's been so shaping. It's been so, it's been such a confrontation in times gone by to the powers that be that from time to time governments have even tried to ban it. In fact, in the past century alone, at least three different countries have banned the public reciting of the Magnificat, as it's called, exactly because governments considered this song's message to be so dangerously subversive. This song on the lips of Mary, the mother of Jesus, it's enough to bring powers and governments down. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at Christmas as a season of revolution and looking at the, the nature of the revolution that Mary anticipates. And so we're looking this morning at Luke chapter 1 and reading from verse uh, 46 to 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked upon the humble state of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham 
and to his offspring forever. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, these words. Thank you for uh, their power to break into our hearts and minds, into our imaginations, and enlarge our uh, perspective of who you are and what you have set about doing, what you aim to accomplish through history. We thank you, Father, for your plans for your Son and for your plans for our lives. And we pray that because of what we hear today, our lives would come into contact with you and your great plans, and you would bring transformation to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we have a mother-to-be here uh, singing a song, a joyful song, a, a happy song, but it's more than just a joyful, happy song. It's more than you might expect. I, I suppose that young mothers uh, with this kind of mystery maternal instinct that comes upon them as they discover that there's life within the womb. They might start to sing lullabies in anticipation of getting to meet the little one. They might start singing comforting songs, songs of tender personal reflection. But Mary's song is not a lullaby. Mary's song is a revolutionary anthem. She's singing about grand things. She's singing about great cosmic global things, changes, transformation. She's speaking about the God of eternity breaking in and changing the fortunes of nations and peoples and rulers, lifting up some and, and tearing down others. She gets hold of something very great in her heart, and it makes her sing. And as I mentioned, as time has, time has gone by, this song has, has become a sort of controversial song, one that people have been advised not to sing. Some have attempted to ban it. Why? Because it seems to confront the powers. It seems to be a threat. And you know, it's worth us reflecting on this, that, that Christianity came as a revolutionary force. Christianity with its apparent obsession on the protecting of and the championing of the disadvantaged and the weak. Christianity with its insistence on the dignity of, of those for whom society often has no concern. Christianity with its lifting up the poor and its challenging of the wealthy and the powerful. Christianity with its love for justice and, and equal dignity of all who are made in the image of God as human beings. Christianity, in that respect, has always been a powerful torpedo, torpedo under the water attacking the hull of the boat of the sort of assumed human powers. And, and all through its influence on the world, Christianity has championed the weak and threatened the rich and the strong. And we need to understand that ever since the influence of this powerful song and the message, the story it rep represents of a God who humbled himself, who shows up in a manger, a God who shows up in a stable with beasts and animals, a God who lives in a, a humble, broken down place, a God who is marginalized and forgotten throughout his life and then finally falsely tried and stripped naked and, and made to haul a Roman cross up a hill to be hammered to it with nails and left hanging to die, tortured to death by a brutal and ruthless regime, this story of this God totally interrupted human history. And it's left a legacy of ordinary people right up today, centuries later, assuming without necessarily knowing where we get that assumption from, that it's important and right for us to look out for the poor, 
That it's important for us to, to treat those who are disadvantaged as equals. That, that God, if there is a God, cares about such things. And even if there isn't such a thing as a God, we really should still care about justice and inequity. And the reason why we in Sonoma County care so much about social justice, the reason why it comes up so much in our political arguments and discourse and, and comes up so much on our Twitter feeds and, and in our various discussions and in our voting is, I dare say it, and some people don't like hearing this, is a legacy of the influence of Christianity. You see, before Christianity came along, the, the Greco-Roman culture of the time, there was no place for the concern for championing of the weak and the poor. The idea of all people, that all people are equal, well, we today in, the 20, in 21st century countries like ours in the West, in cities like ours, Santa Rosa, we assume that idea, right? In fact, we hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. That they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's assumed. Of course everyone knows that. Except they didn't. The Romans and the Greeks would never have said that it was self-evident that all people are created equal. They would never have said that. They would have assumed that that was a silly thing to say. It was self-evident that people are not equal. Some people are greater and stronger and richer than others. And therefore, more worthy, more important, superior. And how is it that that worldview has not prepared prevailed 21 centuries later because of Jesus, because of Christianity, because of songs like this that Mary sang. They've been like a depth charge. It's gone down deep into the heart of history and has brought change, brought transformation like seeds that have gone down deep into the soil of human affairs and they still bear fruit. They still bring forth foliage. The only thing is, what we like is the foliage. We don't like the seeds, right? In cities like Santa Rosa, we, we, we like the idea of human rights. We, we like the idea of equality. We like the idea of dignity for all people and especially care for the disadvantaged. When Nelson Mandela famously said before he died that all nations should be judged not not by how it treats its highest citizens, but its lowest, how well it treats the most vulnerable. His words resonated with us. We instinctively think, yes. But I tell you, we would not have before the revolutionary impact of this story. If it wasn't for Jesus, if it wasn't for Mary, if it wasn't for this story, we wouldn't have had any... Uh, Time for any such sentiments from people like Mandela. But, but they've come about because of the deep rootedness of, of, of this Christian faith in our society. But like I say, what we've done is we've embraced the tree, but not the, the roots. Just like a Christmas tree, in fact. We like the idea of equality. We like the idea of dignity of individual humans and care for the poor and, and for the socially disadvantaged. We honor that. We applaud it. We instinctively think that's the right thing. Whether we are on the left or the right, we still tend to think that that's the right thing to do, especially at Christmas, perhaps. 
but we don't necessarily like the roots of the tree. So just like with our Christmas trees, which are kind of a peculiar tradition if you think about it. It's kind of a strange custom that we go out and we, we pull in a tree, you know, we, we chop it away from its root, and then we plonk it down in our living rooms to die over the course of a few weeks. Just basically to molt in front of us. Gradually its death becomes more and more apparent as the needles cover the carpet. Generally speaking, that's what a Christmas tree is, right? It's decorated death. It's tinseled up. It's a tree that's not got any real life in it. It's been cut from its roots, and so we're having to, to give it a sort of glossy life, a pretense of life. We decorate it. Now, listen, I'm not against that. I love Christmas trees, love the, the whole thing, so don't hear me wrong. But here's the point. We have, we, 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 we've cut it free from its roots, and it doesn't have a future as a result. And it's just the same for our passion for justice, our passion for equity, our passion for concern for the poor. It won't last, friends. It won't last if it's cut from its roots. Where it comes from is a confidence in a God who cares about justice. A God who arrived in a form of a, of a very poor young peasant boy growing up in the house of Mary and Joseph and growing up in obscurity and poverty and is totally prepared. This God of eternity, this God of the cosmos is, is prepared to identify completely with the weak and the disadvantaged and the poor. If he is that kind of God, then we have deep reason to care for the poor, a deep reason to care about justice. If we don't have that kind of God, well, then I'm afraid our justice and our care for the poor is gradually going to molt in front of us. The needles are going to fall out, and, and it's going to just die slowly. The only thing that will keep care for justice and life support for much longer might just be that it stays fashionable. I mean, you get away with being into justice, on, uh, into justice on Twitter today. I mean, no one likes you if you're a Nazi on Twitter, obviously. But gradually speaking, who knows what will happen? Who knows if it becomes more fashionable in 10 years' time to actually despise the poor? If a, if a voice grows up with authority and influence that looks down and completely disregards the, the, the disadvantage and says that it's not just more convenient, but it's actually morally right? And that has been known to be preached in various countries over the years. How are we to oppose that? If we don't have our roots deep in the God of the Bible then we have no reason to say, no, you're wrong. Except it's not our preference. It's just not our fashion. No, if we're going to have the fruit, if we're going to have the life of the tree, we need the, the, the tree to be rooted in something. And the best thing for justice to be rooted in is the God of justice. The best thing for mercy to be rooted in is the God of mercy. And this is why we need the meaning of Christmas and not just the tinsel of Christmas. We need the roots. We need the story. We need to understand and receive and celebrate and embrace the story of this revolution that Mary sings about. And so let me just give you then some characteristics of this revolution that Mary celebrates through her song. And first of all, this is a revolution that unashamedly is in favor of a king. 
This is a revolution that celebrates a king and a kingdom. And that kind of comes through, I suppose, in the whole story that it belongs to. But just notice a few places where Mary sings very happily about uh, the might of this ruler, the, the God who is changing things for good. He who is mighty has done great things for me, verse 49. He has shown strength, she says in verse 51, with his arm. This is a, a, revo a revolution that celebrates rightful authority, celebrates rightful power. Now, we say that because revolutions generally have pulled down the whole idea of authority, the, the whole idea that anyone should rightfully have authority to exert power over other people because of who they are. Well, we're very nervous of that. I mean, we, we, we know that people need to be in charge, and we know that, that it's necessary to have people in charge, right? We've, we've got to have them, but we are very wary of them because we know how power can go to their heads. Power corrupts people, right? And absolute power corrupts people absolutely. And that's been the case in most revol re revolutions. Most revolutions, they, they get rid of kings. Revolutionaries, what, what do they do? They normally chop their heads off. Because we don't like a king. We, we, we want anything but a king. Call for what you like, a committee, uh, a house of representatives, a senate, but no kings. Because kings, that's a nervous idea. Because we're aware that kings have ruled wickedly and kings seem susceptible at least, they seem at least prone to wickedness and injustice. And so it's easy for us to assume that therefore the problem is with the idea of a king. That kings and authority in general are a bad idea. But the Bible doesn't say it, it like that at all. No, the, the Bible presents us happily with the idea of a king whose, rule, whose right it is to rule and who will rule forever and ever. The Bible says, no, kings, power, authority in themselves, these are not necessarily bad. They just need to be properly shown and, defi and defined. And Jesus, even himself in his humility, the God who became man, he didn't stop being God. He didn't stop being the Lord. In fact, he explicitly says this in, in John's gospel in in John chapter 13, verse 13, speaking to his disciples he says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. Do you know when he, say, when he says this? You call me teacher and Lord, and, and you're right. You're right. I am the Lord. Do you know when he, when he says this? This is right in the middle of the story of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. John chapter 13 starts with these, with these words uh, where Jesus described like this, he knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, listen to this, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a the towel that was wrapped around him. This is astonishing. This is God showing up and saying, power is not the problem. I want to show you how power is meant to be exercised. 
authority is not the problem. I want to show you how authority is meant to work. Kings are not the problem. I just want to show you what a king really does. A real king, a true king. I want to define kingness. I want to show you the the right kind of king. And Jesus did that by coming amongst us and washing our feet. This one who is very God of very God, begotten, not created. This one who, whom we sing about at, at Christmas, this eternal Lord of all, subjects himself to being microscopic in the womb of a peasant girl. This God became helpless, became dependent on a little peasant family in Nazareth. And this God grew up taking the role of a servant, the role of a slave, a shameful, disgraceful, embarrassing job, washing people's feet. It's reserved for the lowest people. And God shows up and says, I'll do that. I'll do that job. And I'm your king. He doesn't say the problem around here is you've got kings. We should chop all their heads off. You know, let's not have authority. Let's not have uh, a hierarchy. Let's not, you know, have any of these things. You know, no authority, no more leaders. No, no, Jesus says, no, I am your leader. I am your king. Let me show you what that looks like. Let me redefine for you what kingship is. This king loves his own to the very end and serves them and kneels in humility and washes their feet. See, if the king of heaven, if the king of eternity, if the king of the ages to come is like that, I want to be his subject, don't you? I want to be in his kingdom. I do want a king, actually, if he's like that. This king who comes down and washes feet. So yeah, we have a king. We have a kingdom, we have authority, we have a crown. We, someone is on a throne right now with a crown. There is a man ruling in heaven. But he's ruling for what the Bible calls in Psalm 45, truth, humility, and justice. These are the things that are burning in his heart. And they do burn in his heart. They led him to the cross, didn't they? This is the, the kind of king he is. And I want to be his subject. You see, the problem with our secular revolutionaries is that all they do is create a million little mini kingdoms. You know, we get rid of a king. What have you done? You, you cut the head off the king. What you've done is you've got loads of citizens saying, well, it's all about me then. Because no one wants to submit to anybody else unless they're forced to at the point of a bayonet. And it's all done by sheer control and brutality. That's not the best thing for the future of humanity. God's plan for the future is that there will be a righteous king and people will gladly submit to him joyfully. So it's a revolution with a good king. The second thing about this revolution is that it's a revolution that requires patience. It requires patience. You see, Mary's celebrating, but she hasn't necessarily got much in the moment to celebrate in reality. This baby in her womb is microscopic. If she's singing about the world being set straight, if she's singing about rulers being pulled down and the hungry and the humble being lifted up and justice and righteousness and the poor being cared for, she's not going to see much of that for quite a while. In fact, she's not even going to see the baby for nine months. And even when the baby's born, she's going to have years of finding him very peculiar, 
you know, finding him very confusing, having to ask him a lot of questions. Why were you in the temple? Why were you meeting with those people? Why did you, you know, why are you doing that? Mary's whole life is characterized by patiently waiting for things to get clear. See, if God has brought you, invited you into the mystery of his plan, it may mean that you're going to have to sit by and wait a while while he brings it about. See, Mary knows something at this point that, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, is destined to fill the whole earth, that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. There will be a day when everybody will acknowledge with their mouths or with their knees, they will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. They will say, you are the righteous ruler, you are the Lord of all. Everyone will. Even the ones that despise him, even the ones that pierced him, they will be unable to resist it. And Mary's the only one on, on planet earth at this point who's in on the secret. And that's the way it is with God's kingdom. It's often an incredibly gradual thing. It's coming about slowly. It's nine months in the womb. It's 30 years of obscurity. And then it's this tiny bunch of disciples, peculiar people. And then it's a, a few Christians after Jesus ascended who baptize each other and take bread and wine and get beaten up for it and thrown in the Alliance arena. And yet they keep flourishing and growing and multiplying and taking over. And it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, but slowly but surely. And very often the Christian life can feel like that. Very often it will feel as though we are outnumbered and marginalized where we're made to think that, you know, we're on the wrong side of history. The world sees us as irrelevant at best. You know, I frequently feel that on Sunday mornings when I'm even on my way to church as I pass by so many people going about their lives and their business. Sometimes it feels like such an irrelevancy. We can feel so marginalized, feel so obscure. And in your own life, maybe you're even, even like Mary, you're carrying promises in your heart, things that you believe that you're supposed to do with your life, things that you were looking forward to, always looking forward and wishing that this season of obscurity would come to an end when the promises of God would be fulfilled and real in your life. It can be tempting to just be so confused and bewildered and disappointed, just, oh, it's never going to happen. And my voice and concerns are ignored. I'm, I am ignored. I am despised and ignored in this world. I'm afraid we, 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 we live in this tension. We do. And that's a big theme in the Bible. That's, that's why John says in his letter at the end of the Bible, 1 John chapter 3, he says, We are already the children of God. We are already. He says, And what we will be has not yet appeared. Already we are. There's something within us, just like there was something within Mary. There's this kind of seed of life. There's this microscopic life. There's something within us already. We carry something of the divine inside us by his grace. We belong to the future. We belong to an age to come. And we live in this present age with tensions, sometimes being misunderstood and even mocked. And it's just... I have this life within me, but it doesn't yet appear what I shall be. 
Paul says in Romans chapter, chapter 8, the whole of creation is yearning, is waiting, is groaning, looking forward, anticipating the revealing of the sons of God. What he means is part of the future, part of this kingdom, part of this revolution is that those who are loved, who love the Lord, who, those who have had their hearts won over to him, will be seen to be with him, will be revealed alongside him, will be raised up in honor with him. And it's in the Bible so that we look forward to it. It's part of our hope. The obscurity will be over. We'll inherit a kingdom that will be forever and ever and ever. And at this stage, we often get told by the media, by politicians, by social media, even by our friends and family that we're on the wrong side of history because of this book, because of the things that we hold to. But we need to be like Mary and confidently hold on to what we... Hold on that what we know will slowly come about. Slowly but surely, she knows it's coming. So much so that that's why she sings. Have you noticed as if it's all happened? It's all in the past tense. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has helped his servant Israel. She sang as if it's already happened. And it hasn't even begun. It's just this microscopic thing in her uterus. But as far as she's concerned, it's done. She's living in the good of it. She's living in the good of it. She is persuaded this is certain. This king will reign. She knows it. By the Holy Spirit, she knows what's to come. And it inflames her soul with hope. And this is what you need. Brother and sister, you need hope. Don't we we all need hope? And God comes to us at Christmas to fill us with hope of a a future age when he will govern and reign and we alongside him forever. And it, it, it may sound preposterous, but listen, Easter Sunday sounded preposterous. I will rise again three days. Disciples didn't understand it. They understand it now. And we hold on in hope because of what we know. He surely has risen, will rise with them. There's a kingdom to come. There's a ruler who will rule and govern righteously, and we will rule with him. Hold on to it. Grow slowly, this kingdom, like an acorn in a graveyard. An acorn just grows slowly. A gravestone, what could be more formidable than a gravestone? Death in stone. But years later, what do you see? You see this tree that's ripped through the, the rock. The, the stone is, is, is broken. Because what looks so puny, just a little acorn, is enough to potentially to break the power of death. And Jesus, just this tiny microscopic fetus, brings a kingdom that will govern forever. Friends, hold on in hope. Let's hold on in great hope and patience and then third and final, the third and final thing is, it's a revolution of justice and mercy. A revolution of justice and mercy. See, Mary's talking about good news, but let's not be foolish and naive. You see, bringing down the, the proud sounds good until you realize that you might be proud, Right? Mary says, this kingdom is coming. God's going to show up and rule, and he will bring down the proud. 
Well, that includes me, definitely. You ask my wife and kids, I'm proud. I suffer from pride. I struggle with pride. Where does the line stop? Is it the very proud that get brought down? The, you know, the really proud, you know, the, the Donald Trumps of the world, he's apparently very proud. He'll get pulled down, but not me. No, not, not me. You know, they're the proud ones. Those people over there, you know, on social media or, or um, our opponents in that camp, in that tribe, they're proud, not me. No, I'm not proud. What fools we are. How foolish we are. How apparently irredeemably foolish we are. How quick we are to recognize folly and wickedness and pride in everybody but ourselves. And so we assume if God ever did show up, I'll be fine. Because I'm a goody, they're the baddies. Not according to the Bible. It says every mouth is stopped. No one can boast. All have sinned and fall short, have fallen short of the glory of God. And Mary includes herself amongst those who need mercy. She talks about God being her Savior. We are proud by birth. Where's God going to stop in His judgment? Where, where does the line stop? Who, who's going to be the, the first against the wall when the revolution comes? Is God going to show up and put, if, if He's going to come and show up and put everything right? Listen, that should scare us. And yet justice isn't the only thing that we can expect from this revolutionary king. We can also expect mercy. As Mary says herself in verse 50, his mercy is for those who fear him. His mercy. This God that shows up to judge, well, he first shows up with mercy. One day he'll show up with, uh, he'll show up on a white horse. He'll, one day he'll show up to set everything straight, and we will all be speechless. But first he shows up in a manger. First he shows up with overwhelming kindness and tenderness. And this is how he is. This is how he is with us today. The Bible says, turn to the Lord now. Seek him now. Don't harden your hearts. The time will come when there will be no last opportunity for mercy when he comes to judge and set everything straight. And so seek the Lord now while he may be found. He's a merciful God. He's a merciful, gracious God. This Jesus, such kindness, such favor to the utterly undeserving, to people like me. Jesus' forgiveness of sins is just staggering. Jesus' kindness to his enemies is unbelievably overwhelming. Jesus' grace and goodness to those in, in brokenness and need, it's enough to heal us from our worst conditions. And this is who you need. You need the merciful God. Come to Him on His terms. Come not arrogantly, come humbly. He who measures not himself will be measured. George Herbert, the, the poet, says, you could be going through life and never stopping to consider your own need before God. Measure yourself wisely. Do you need the mercy of God? Do you need it today? Well, then come to him today. As we come to the table to take communion, look to the Lord Jesus to receive a fresh grace and forgiveness.
and be assured that you will find it. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus. And we pray that we would each come to know the revolutionary rule of this great king in our lives. And we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.